Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. Thank you to Phoebe Squared for the last three hours of maps. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the cave tonight are Sally Christie. Hello, hello. And Emma Westwood. Hello, Paul. Hello. Nice to see you. How are we doing? God, it's been a really long time since we've all seen each other. Feels like it. I think we've lived in each other's pockets all weekend, pretty much. (laughs) With their various Monster Fest and Cinemaniacs going on. Yeah, what's happening here for cinema in Melbourne moment? You guys can't get enough of each other. Yeah, Yeah, you two were on panels over the weekend doing intros. Yeah, and and then we saw you. We sort of tagged, you know, high fived you as you're going into the Al Adamson documentary. And wow, watching docs about quality filmmakers. Yeah, (laughs) good ones. Great to see everyone. On tonight's show, we descend into madness with Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin. <coughs> Joaquin Phoenix in Todd Phillips's reinvention of comics' greatest villain in Joker. Then Sally has a very special interview with the Pope of Trash, the fabulous writer-director John Waters, promoting his Australian tour of his upcoming one-man show, Make Trouble, which he'll be performing this Friday night at Emma Hall in Melbourne. And in honour of the great man for tonight's retro title, we'll be trying on his 1981 classic Polyester, thankfully without Odorama. <laughs> I have an Odorama. Not here in the studio, but at home. <laughs> you have Odorama. Yeah, like, I have Odorama. You should get some Odorama. deodorant for that. <laughs> but the thing is, it's now all turned into gasoline. Oh, no. It yeah. all just smells like gasoline. It just smells like gasoline, everyone. It's a bit old, let's you, just say. And you've got, got, I've got a couple, but I'm, I'm scared to scratch them. <laughs> <laughs> just just keep on living the I dream. I should at least scratch one. I was, when I was rewatching, I was like, can I do it? I don't do know I scratch I for the fart? That's what yeah, you're yeah. That's yeah. Number, yeah. Two. Yeah. Yeah. number two. <laughs> number two, appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. Water's on point as ever. Um, before we jump in, uh, we should mention that the great character actor Robert Forster passed away a weekend, age 78. Very sad. Mm, yeah, he's very sad. Very sad. I always, I always dug him. Um, of course, he was most famous for his Academy Award-nominated role in Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, playing bail bondsman Max Cherry. But he carved out an amazing career which began opposite Liz Taylor and Marlon Brando in John Huston's Reflections in a Golden Eye and then Haskell Wexler's counterculture classic um, Medium Cool. Um, went through very uh, many studio and exploitation films during the 70s and 80s, including 1982's Alligator. Alligator, yes. yeah. It's a favourite of mine as a kid. Yeah. Uh, Roadshow home video quality title. <laughs> uh, before hitting a wilderness period in the 90s until Tarantino rebooted his career Jackie Brown. After that, uh, he appeared in uh, such acclaimed films as Alexander Payne's The Descendants and the David Lynch doubleheader of Mulholland Drive and the other Sheriff Harry Truman in Twin Peaks The Return. <laughs> mm. um, I always thought Forster brought an assured, lived-in presence and a kind of a tough yet tender masculinity. And he's, yeah. al- he's always a cool interview as well. He's always really different. Yeah. I think uh, he kind of did a David Bowie. He actually died on the day that um, El Camino was released on Netflix, which is his last appearance, which is the Breaking oh, Bad wow. film. I didn't realise yeah. that he was in that. I haven't yes. watched it yet. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I but, am um, too. I haven't had the chance to sit down and watch it. Cool. Things have 
been quite hectic. We've <laughs> been a busy week this weekend. Well, it only came out um, in Melbourne, at least on Netflix on Thursday. So. Was worldwide. Mm. It was a worldwide, oh, worldwide. drop. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm never entirely sure whether we're out of the loop or what. We're in the loop. <laughs> that's the that that's the Netflix mm. idea. Everyone's in the loop at once. Yep. It's very Beautiful. cool. Um, yeah, that's a not very... really. They only give us what a quarter of the content <laughs> here yeah, in Australia. Right. No, we... don't get me started. Mm. But anyway, <laughs> uh, that is a very black star move, though. Kind of buying the last film. Mm. Yeah. Now let's put on a happy face as <laughs> we take a look at our first film for this evening, Joker. Living a down and dirty, living in a down and dirty 1981 Gotham City, strongly resembles City from that period, even down to the super rats and the garbage strikes. <laughs> the life of Arthur Fleck, portrayed by Joaquin Phoenix, is one big long, beset with various mental illnesses, from depression to a Tourette-style condition that sees him break out in uncontrollable laughter when nervous. Arthur lives in a tiny apartment with his aging mother Penny, Frances Conroy, finds himself beaten up by local kids learning that his prescribed counselling sessions are being defunded and losing his job as a clown for hire in cruelly comical fashion. All Arthur wants out of life is to bring laughter to the world like Murray Franklin, Robert De Niro, the Merv Griffin-style talk show host he idolised, and meet someone like Sophie, the nice lady who lives down the hall, played by Zazie Beetz. But when Arthur is beaten up again by drunken Wall Street types and forced to defend himself, his brutal actions send his life into a tailspin, giving him a newfound sense of power inadvertently inspiring a protest movement amongst the poor and disenfranchised of Gotham and increasingly fracturing his relationship with reality and sanity as a new, darker, area persona. And where does prominent billionaire and mayoral candidate Thomas Wayne, a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps type, figure into Emma, did this gritty reinvention of Batman's arch-nemesis leave you with a happy face or crying the tears? I thought you were going to say arse nemesis for a moment He's there. <laughs> that's yeah, a different that's, kind that's of movie. A, that's in the adult section. <laughs> that's, that's the adult version of this, right? That's, was that 60s film Bat Pussy? You might be yeah. That. yeah, this is really totally my jam, this Ooh. film. Totally my jam. I love origin films, origin slash inception, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and uh, whether it's a, a superhero film or something else, uh, this what I, I think I really liked about this was because it was an origin film, uh, kind of a superhero origin film, kind of not, you know. And the fact that it played with uh, a superhero story and really took it out of the superhero universe. Like I, I completely forgot it was Gotham City at times I completely forgot it was the Batman story and because you're just thinking New York and then they say Gotham City and you're like, oh, of course. And you then, see a sign for Arkham or something. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, and it just – and I love those – I love that pulling you in and out in that way. That was – but but in not a, a jarring way. I mean everything in this film works so tightly. It was beautifully, beautifully written. It's um, not too long, two minutes, two hours, two minutes or something Including like that. Credits, Including credits. Including credits, a really punchy tight. It uh, riffs on some major cinema moments, um, namely Taxi Driver and uh, King of Comedy, which we talked about a couple of weeks back two or three weeks back Uh, and uh, really heavily uh, riffed on that and I think that it did it in an incredibly intelligent way. I mean, they're they're scary films to to decide to reference in your movie. I mean, that's 
that's you know taking that's been ballsy. Mm, let's try target on your back. Yeah, mm. and I think that Todd Phillips and all the filmmakers did an incredibly admirable job of this. I think it's interesting that Phillips comes from the comedy background mm. as well, um, and I like the way this played on, especially in what what comes through from King King of Comedy that uncomfortable element um and it really plays up on that a number of very uncomfortable scenes um but also it's not so much about the comedy because he isn't funny Mm. and that's the sort of joke shall i say in quotation marks as well but it's more around clowning as well and Mm. that idea of um physicality and the the duality of the clown that body movement that is yeah. in this film is phenomenal the and way his he, body moves is incredible how he moves he's he uh how he actually embodies that character in every way physically and mentally because he lost a lot of weight he's very very thin in this film um and yeah, I think it's incredible. There's a lot of stuff that's been thrown again, added about being, uh, you know, super giving a sympathetic story to a a nasty character, which I think is just because it makes people uncomfortable. Because unfortunately, it'd be lovely if we could put all the baddies in just the bad jar, but you know, guess what? You know, a lot of child molesters were child molested. Well, so it, there's pff, so many it, important things that this. <laughs> This movie, um, you know, brings to a conversation where, I mean, there's this whole moral panic over it, uh, but, you know, Americans like that. And incels mm-hmm. and things yeah. like that as well. Yeah. So there's deeper issues that we have to look at <clears throat> when it comes to all of that stuff, which I think Joker does really, really well um, to an audience that perhaps wouldn't normally see a, f- a film that looks at that kind of particular information. When I saw this at Nova last week, there was an entire row behind me of just lads. And <laughs> How did they react? They were, you know, fine, like totally fine. But, you know, it's kind of that thing where they perhaps wouldn't normally seek out a movie that has content like this, you know, I shouldn't really be assuming, but um, that we, we can have a conversation like this. And I do really feel like this will end up on things like that because the way that it does deal with things like, um, you know, mental illness, funding being taken away from those structures, um, people being left with no support, which is, you know, not just happening in America, but here as well. Like the, our rate of homeless in the last mm. five years has increased by 35%. Physical. Physical and mental abuse. Which is insane. So there's such good conversation to come from a film that is going to be so widely viewed. And I do think that this is a really important film in that regard, for sure. There's something, I mean, look, social media is always doing its best to generate nonsense conversation (laughs) about this. Like, social media has nonsense conversation. I know, right? No, it's usually informative and intelligent. (laughs) And it's just like, it's focusing on all the wrong stuff. Like, oh, it's it's going to empower incels. Oh, it's an apology. It's about toxic masculinity and it's, oh, it's a white guy. It's an apologia for white guy. But it's like, it's none of this at all. It's a film, it's a film about how capitalist structures bear down on the poor it's it's a film about how we don't look after people it's mm. a, it's about how you know a, you know that um sort of drawing on that sort of dostoevsky quote of you know a society can be judged by observing the quality of a society can be judged by observing its prisoners or at least it's least fortunate and you know and frequently for arthur is coming up against a system where things like 
empathy, therapy, and compassion are bad investments. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and and this is the thing. And it's like this. And the film ultimately the message of the film is like be nicer to each other. Yeah. Mm. And I it's like it. be n- put money into government funding for people that do need support. Exactly. And it's like it has nothing to do with all, all this other nonsense. And it's just it's it's just this clickbait. Out, manufactured outrage, which drives me crazy. And, uh, yeah, I agree. I, I think the film, look, I think at times it can be a little on the nose. I think Phoenix's performance is mesmerising. Yeah. I think he's incredible. Mm. Um, it's sort of that track that started with his, you know, I, and, and oh, what was that doco? I'm not here. I'm, I can mm. get the name of it. Yes. Uh, I, was, I know. I'm, I'm never really about, here. I'm, I'm going to talk here. about that I'm in never... a little, in a moment yeah. when you finish talking. Because it's, it's sort of like that's, sort of became like a creative reboot for his career and then the master and that performance and then leading to this it's just something and and last year's uh, you were never really here the, mm. the Lynn Ramsey film which parallels with this well, one that, quite that's nicely what, that's what I was thinking when I was watching this because I know Emma you said that you had, haven't seen the Lynn Ramsey film Is yes no I have oh, for some reason I thought you hadn't seen it no I put but, it on um, my top ten well, last year that's how yeah. much attention I pay <laughs> yeah. but so she saw it <laughs> you saw it but um, there were so many parallels to mm. you were never really here the Lynn Ramsey film and um, Joker mm. and has he done a film in between those two uh, he won't get far on foot. Perhaps, okay, the, the oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but there was yeah so many parallels and the that... sisters brothers as well. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah actually, actually you're right. I haven't seen that one. He's doing everything. At the He's moment. a busy no, man. That Joaquin. Um, but yeah, so many parallels to Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. Even in the setup, you know, the mental illness aspect, the living um, with the mother, yep. the so much stuff going on that it just felt like a kind of a natural progression for him to roll off that and, and to do taxi Joker. driver riffing because yes yeah. Yeah. yeah you never really hear really mm-hmm. reference taxi driver yeah, as well mm-hmm. and and copped a lot less flack than this film copped for it too, I might add. <laughs> well, this and is, they're both great films. Like, yeah, I think, yeah, but I think this film's just so um, – been released on a much bigger scale with a much bigger PR budget mm-hmm. and that's why – and it's an uncomfortable film and people don't like to be made uncomfortable. No, no and that's and that's what I thought it was most um, – I think the, 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 rather than – I think the social stuff uh, that happens here is is really – like it may not be particularly deep but I think it's really present. But the, the two things that fascinated me the most about this film were kind of the metatextual of it the way it it draws not only from the Scorsese films but from things like um, Network The French Connection I think this is as much Billy Friedkin in this film as there is Scorsese I agree he's one of my favourite directors so So, maybe that's why this is my jam (laughs) Mm -hmm. but also real life events like Christine Chubbuck and Mm -hmm. Bernie Bernie Getz Um, and all of this kind of feeds into into the the narrative and and then of course um, famous Joker comics like the Killing Joke and the Dark Knight Returns. But when you speak of that feeling uncomfortable, that's the thing that impressed me the most. There are scenes in this film when he's kind of striding down the street in slow mo, smoking, and mm-hmm. he's in full Joker regalia, or when he's coming onto the set of um, uh, uh, Murray's talk show and he's all you know flailing around, and it's like. Part of you is going, that's super cool. And on the other hand, your heart is sinking. You're going, yes, no, yeah. no, 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 mm. because he's sinking into insanity. And I describe it best, I feel like it's best described as it's like watching a charismatic alcoholic. Mm. And you're just like, what you're doing is killing you. Stop it. Mm. But at the same time, you're, you're wonderful, that's your wonderful per- to watch. And that's, your pers- and that's where he's gained legitimacy and his personality. Mm. It's it's really, it's, it's uncomfortable. It places the audience, like we all, it's interesting that the social, the social media parlay that goes around this, everyone wants to put, you know, someone in a box and say that's, that's why they're just bad. 
but this makes us question everything, you know, mm. and, and that's what's so important about this film. It says where does this all come, where yes, does stuff come from, where does badness are, come unnecessarily from? unnecessarily just born bad. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's, there's things that... And I loved, I even thought felt it didn't take anything away from Ledger's performance as a, no. uh, of the Joker as well. They're because different. Yeah, but it, it, Ledger's was really, and in that film, the way it was presented was as a uh, no humanity, right? There was nothing to appeal to there. It was like um, Haneke's Funny Games, mm. you know. Yeah. There was nothing, you you were, he, he, you weren't going to be, be able to talk your way out of anything with him. And this gives an amazing backstory to it, yeah. which I think then actually gives a whole lot to his performance as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I loved about it, that you could take, obviously Ledger couldn't pay, play this role, but Phoenix seemed to really honour it in an amazing way. Yeah, and I think the, the I think the only thing, one of the few criticisms I do have, is the fact that it's so tangible and and like the the cinematography um, and the production design, fantastic in this film as well, genuinely grimy, not comic book grimy. Um, um, is that whenever it began? See, I had an issue like whenever it did begin to relate back to the Batman mythos, particularly towards the end, yeah. it just really pulled me out. It's like, and I can't see how this guy becomes. The criminal mastermind, the we, clown prince of crime. You know, we um. It I think like Paul and I talked a little bit about this over the weekend, but that that is my same only criticism that whenever it went to Batman territory, that was the only time that it took away from. This. Um, I I'm not going to pretend I know a whole yeah. lot about the Batman mm-hmm. universe. I'm a fan of Burton. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you like Cesar Romero as yes, the Joker? Yes, I do. I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I am a fan Cesar. of yeah, Adam West Batman. But um, yeah, that was the only time that I kind of got shifted because it felt kind of almost forced. Like, yes. okay, we've got to put this here. We have to put this here now. Yeah, yeah. is this reminder? You're watching a comic yes. book, and it's like, mm. no, no, I was watching a real yeah. person break down. I think I was just gone with it by yeah. that time. Mm. I, I get what you're saying, but it didn't matter to me. Yep. Joke, swept up, swept, swept up. up in the psychosis <laughs> of Joker, and and oh, and De Niro is fantastic. Um, he's oh yeah, fun. Robert De Niro. De Niro's Whatever. fine. Oh yeah, he's good. Isn't yeah, he? um, Joker is now screening at all good cinemas. Triple R. So for our middle segment tonight, we won't be reviewing a film because we've got something super exciting and dare I say, just beautiful, as Edith Massey would say for you. <laughs> Uh, from exploding out of Baltimore with his underground midnight movie sensation Pink Flamingos in 1972 to making drag queen Divine a leading lady in polyester and, and inspiring a Broadway smash with Hairspray, uh, as well as giving Johnny Depp away out of 21 and Jump Street with Crybaby, uh, writer-director John Waters has always been one of America's most cheerful provocateurs, as well as one of its most brilliant satirists of modern life. And if you've seen any of the 9,000 or so documentaries he's been a talking head in, one of its smartest and funniest raconteurs. Those skills he'll be bringing to Melbourne this Friday night with his latest one-man show, Make Trouble. Tickets currently on sale via the Arts Centre Melbourne's website. But this very cave's own resident John Waters superfan number one, Sally Christie, scored an interview with him. And here she is. Enjoy. On the line with me, I have the iconic filmmaker, author and artist John Waters, who is in town for his Make Trouble tour, which is happening this Friday night at Hamer Hall. Hi, John. Um, welcome to Triple R. How are you going? I'm well, thank you for having me. Excellent. Lovely to have you here. It's wonderful to have you back in Australia. And a big congratulations on your new book, Mr. Know-It-All. 
Thank you. Which I'm I think the books out, and I'm doing a Make Trouble tour here of my comedy show. So yeah, we got lots of new things out in Australia. So I think it's—is it your sixth book, Mister Know It All? It's about my sixth or seventh book. Yeah, I had screen. I had screenplay books too. But uh, yes, and it is, and all my books in America are still in print. So it's 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 exciting. I think so. most of them are still in print here too. Yeah, good. <laughs> so one thing that Australian audiences may not know about you is that in 2017, you began running an annual summer camp in Connecticut, which I have attended every single year. It is You've my, been there every year? Every year. Camp? It is my wow. absolute highlight of the year, John. I even went for my honeymoon there last year. <laughs> but God, yes. Well, I remember you now because you said you were from Australia, but this wasn't this year great. I thought it was the best year. This year was absolutely fantastic. Um, just the bonds that people have created at that camp are, you know, amazing. So it's just going back and seeing these beautiful friendships that have been created through you creating this summer camp. So thanks, John. Like, it's... Well, I love it. I mean, we, we have a joke. We say it's Jonestown with a happy end. It really is. But, uh, it, it really is because uh, people get married at it. People come from all over the world. People dress as the characters in my movies for days. I mean, this year they even set up Mortville from Desperate Living. It, it is. It even shocks me. Ricky Lake looked at me this year and said, oh, my God. She was startled too by the whole thing and we have good counselors i mean what other camp has tracy lords as a counselor i know tracy lords ricky lake we've had uh, everyone there as a camp counselor so yeah it's just such a joyous event but what i would really like to know is how did the idea of camp john waters come about it came about from um, one of the well, two of the promoters that I have all the year for my Christmas show. I do a show called the John Waters Christmas Show, which is different from Make Trouble, the show that I'm doing in Australia. Um, and uh, and they came up with the idea. It's in a it's in a real, really beautifully uh, preserved, real summer camp. I mean, it is, and people do camp activities at it. So it was their idea, and I I thought it was a great idea to go along with it. And so we're going in next year's the fifth year. So yeah, it was thought up by the promoter that I have uh, for my regular Christmas show. Yeah, it's um, super. I think it's where they filmed Friday the 13th Part 2 at that summer camp. Did they film Friday the yeah. 13th? Yeah. I don't know. I'm surprised we didn't have any Jason... Jason meets Tracy Turnblad. <laughs> that would be of, fantastic. Uh, sexual floats, right. <laughs> Maybe next year. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So, um, with your new book, Mr. Know-It-All, you talk quite a lot about the rise of VHS in the late 70s and the early 80s. So, your films before Polyester um, were considered to be great midnight movies and still are, but Pink Flamingos held residency at the iconic Elgin Theatre in New York, I think, longer than El Topo did. So... I'm really interested, how did the rise of VHS and home media affect you as a filmmaker then? Well, I, I talk a lot about that in Make Trouble, is that basically what happened when midnight movies ended when video came out, home video, because everybody could stay home and smoke pot. Everybody yeah. else could <laughs> masturbate at home. They didn't have to go to a theater to do it. So it became like a whole different ball game. So I tried to make a movie, Polyester, that had Odorama, which, by the way, just was re-released again in a beautifully restored Criterion version with new Odorama cards that are arty or more abstract. And uh, so uh, it just, I had to come up with something that could play in regular times at regular theaters because midnight movies I knew were, were kind of dying. 
Mm. And really since, the only real midnight movie I can think of that's worked in the last 10 years was Human Centipede. I think that's probably the only one that really became famous for being a midnight movie. Yeah, I tend to agree. I, I definitely think that Human Centipede has lived on to be a midnight movie, for sure. You just mentioned... um that polyester has had a beautiful Criterion release and the artwork is amazing. I want to get it framed and put in my home. That the gorgeous... artwork is so great that I hired Sam, who did it, Sam Hadley, to do my Christmas card this year. Oh, really? So he's, he's a really good, and he's Irish. He lives in Ireland. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's so beautiful. But um, so this is, Polyester's the third film. You've had multiple maniacs and female trouble restored and released as part of the prestigious yeah. Criterion collection. Um, how does it feel from going to being truly underground that critics said things like, if you ever see Water's name on a marquee, walk on the other side of the road and hold your nose, to being so embraced by, um, you know, more mainstream audiences and, you know, prestigious distribution companies like Criterion? Well, I think it's not the last laugh, but it's at the same time, we use those negative reviews in the beginning. We put them in the ads. That wouldn't work today. Critics are way too hip to give you that ammunition today. But I think the best story that sums that up, my mother, when she was in a retirement home, was in the same home with Jeff Koons' aunt. Uh And they used to compare stories and say, oh, my God, when I had to go to the opening of Female Trouble, (laughs) oh, when he had that show of naked pictures of his wife, and they would compare (laughs) stories and howl about I guess they felt they did get the last laugh. So it was kind of a touching thing to having relatives of both of us reminiscing about their mortification about their career. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Um, another thing that you touch on a lot in Mr. Know-It-All is it's clear that you have a love of fashion and you give lots of fashion advice in this book. Uh, one of my all-time personal heroes is the late and great Van Smith, who worked on nearly all of your films in the makeup department, and he's responsible for giving us Divine's iconic Pimingos look. Um, yeah, I personally really feel that Van's work, especially in Female Trouble, had a huge impact on subculture fashion that came soon after Female Trouble, like punk and goth. Um, have you noticed this? Have you sort of noticed his legacy in fashion sort of live on? I think I have, and Van Smith certainly, a lot of times in Women's Road Daily when they ask different designers what their inspiration was, they often say Van Smith. And Van Smith thought up not only Divine's look, but he did the costumes for every one of my movies, and he was really ahead of his time, certainly. Uh, Van also drank. The only movie he ever did sober was A Dirty Shame. Oh, really? So uh, Van had a lot of personal demons, Mm -hmm. but he always came through, and he, uh, he, I think he was definitely a huge part of the success of all my movies, along with Vincent Perenia, who did all the production design for all my movies, and Pat Moran, who cast them all with uh, with different casting directors. So I, I think uh, those were the backbone of Dreamland, too. Beside Divine and Mink Stoll and Mary Vivian Pierce, they were equal parts of it, definitely. And when Van died, he got the most amazing obituaries in the New York Times and Women's Wear Daily, and his own parents said, oh my God, I never realized he had this legacy or anything. It was a shame to, for him to get that kind of great, great honors uh, from dying. And, and he didn't get to see it. I get to see it. Yeah, and I, I really, yeah, I agree with you that, that especially his work, if you look at something like Mortville in Desperate Living, the amount of design that's gone into that is just phenomenal. 
And well, even in polyester, when I saw the new restored version, there's a scene where Divine and Edith Massey are eating a pie together. They eat a <laughs> cake. But there is a paper towel rack right between them that I never noticed that Vincent Perennial put there that upstages them both in a whole scene. Now, that's a good production designer if a paper towel sensor <laughs> can upstage the two stars. You know what? I just rewatched their Criterion release of that, I think, last like two days ago, and I 100% noticed that within the scene. I <laughs> really did. That's what restoration can do. <laughs> exactly. It looks beautiful, by the way. Do you know a yeah, Criterion re- intending on releasing any more of your work? Well, I hope so. Yeah. You know, the reason I think Pink Flamingos probably hasn't been is because we put out a 25th anniversary edition okay. here, and in there we had all the footage that was cut and all that kind of stuff. So I, I don't know. I, I'm happy that any of the ones they want to do, I think it's exciting. They do such, they're such a class act. Yeah, they are. It's they real... do beautiful jobs, and uh, and I got to reunite like I, I uh, the, the guy um, who played uh, the who played the footstopper, Kenny King. He came, I get, he came and he came to the premiere when we had it in New York and that little girl Taffy, I got to get on film to talk about when she, what it was like when she, as a child, made female trouble. So I also get to reunite with a lot of those stars that I haven't seen since we made the movie. Oh, that's beautiful that you still have kin with them all. That's excellent. Um, you're listening to Plato's Cave on 3 Triple R. I'm Sally Christie and I am talking to John Waters. Um, so, John... In two of your earlier books, Shock Value and Role Models, you talk a lot about attending trials and most notably you attended the Manson trial. You also have, I think, a 40-plus year friendship with Leslie Van Houten, is an ex-Manson girl, and you advocate for her parole as she's been rehabilitated. So I was just wondering, with the Manson family that always seem to come back into public consciousness and especially at the moment with Tarantino's new film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood – do you think this is going to have a negative impact on Leslie's chance for parole? Do you mind talking about that for a little bit? Yeah, that's a complicated question. Yep. I mean, since I wrote Role Models, Leslie has been granted parole three times and is turned down every time by the governor of California uh-huh. for, I feel, very unfair reason. But the Tarantino movie, in a way, is a happy ending. If that ending, and I don't want to be a spoiler alert for people that haven't seen the movie, if that ending had happened, Leslie's night would have never happened. Exactly. She would have never committed the crime and mm. she would have never gone to jail. And so the fact that Sharon Tate lives in the movie and there was so second night is uh, a happy ending in a way. Yep. I just ruined it for the people <laughs> sitting here who hasn't seen the movie. <laughs> That's but, okay. Uh, it's been out a while now. They've had their chance. <laughs> you should have, should have already seen Exactly. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> sorry about that. I did just ruin it. But, all right. <laughs> so I think, I think in a way, it is a happy ending in a way. And it's also almost funny. It's so ridiculous what happens. But um, at, at the same time, I don't think she would find any of it funny. And she is distressed that it never goes away. And I think, I think now that 50-year anniversary has passed, it will go away. I don't think yeah. there will be a 60th anniversary. And if there is, I... And Leslie both might be dead. So the thing is, I I don't think ever again will it have this amount of attention. And I hope it doesn't for the victim's sake, victim's Mm -hmm. family's sake, for the people that look back on it in great horror that were involved with it. It's a nightmare story all around and he's dead and that's the only good thing that's happened. Yeah, exactly. Um, Are you still attending trials? No, I don't go to trials anymore because people recognize me. <laughs> I was going to say you'd have to wear like I a fedora or something. Yeah. 
Tampa Bay, if they don't like me, they'll give the the defendant the death penalty. Um, I still I, I still read about them, and you know, there's a few trials I would have liked to have gone to, but um, no, I don't go to them anymore. And I, I taught in prison for a long time after that, which sort of changed how I felt about the whole thing. Even in even in role models, I kind of apologized about how the smart ass way I kind of wrote about that and shock value. Mm-hmm. So um, I I think um, I did learn a lot of about victims' rights and about uh, about rehabilitation. And I, and I do believe that there are some people that should get a second chance, and I also believe there's some yeah. that shouldn't. You know? yeah. uh, but I don't know. I don't think anybody's born. I think everybody's born innocent and something happens. Yeah, I tend to agree. Do you remember what the last trial was that you did go to? The last trial I went to was probably friends of mine when I would just go be a character witness. They were the same trials. <laughs> For just friends trials where I had to go down. And I, I actually um, got one friend off because I said to the judge, he's he's not a criminal, he's an asshole. And the judge <laughs> big difference. and gave him parole. So <laughs> if I if if I wasn't if I wasn't a filmmaker writer, I'd be a defense lawyer and I'd be a pretty good one. Yeah, I think so too. I love your story about Tracy Lords on the set of Cry Baby that um, were you being raided by the FBI because Tracy well, was we there? Were, well, Tracy was there, and the, the FBI was raiding because they wanted Tracy to come back to testify against the mob for mm-hmm. making the underage porn she was in. And she was just horrified and embarrassed. We were trying to shoot a scene, and the, you know, the FBI raised us up. And Patricia Hurst was comforting her, saying, oh, don't worry, we've all been arrested. So it was kind of <laughs> touching that she really found that she was in a community that, you know, accepted her. And, yeah. and, uh, and both... Johnny Depp and her and Patricia Hurst all made the right decision because what they did when they came with me is they made fun of what they couldn't change. Johnny Depp was a teen idol. He didn't want to be one, so he made fun of being one. Uh-huh. Lourdes was a bad girl. She played it made fun of it. Uh, Patricia Hurst, by even being in a movie, was making fun of the fact that she was a celebrity victim. Who wants to be that? She yeah. didn't want to be that. So she made movies to just try and end that for all, and it worked for all three of them in a way. Yeah, I think it did for sure. Um You've talked extensively in the past about your love of filmmakers like Russ Meyer and Herschel Gordon-Lewis. Are there any current filmmakers that you would, that you really love or that you consider even to be exploitation filmmakers? Well, exploitation, they hardly make that anymore. Yeah. Exploitation was made when Hollywood couldn't do something. Mm-hmm. Now Hollywood can show everything. I think Harmony Corinne's Spring Breaker was a great exploitation movie. Yep. Um, I think there are more art exploitation movies like Gaspar Noe and Lars von Trier. They make art exploitation and they're some of my favorite kind of movies. So they still are filmmakers that are pushing the edge. Todd Salons, uh, lots of them, lots of them, and I'm all for them. But as real exploitation, I don't know. I mean, maybe those shark movies. <laughs> Sharknado. They aren't that they aren't that interesting to me. Um, maybe uh, what was that one? Three D D. It was like I forget. Was it, it was. Like, it was a piranha, wasn't it? Piranha. Yes. 3D. That was a good one. I went to see that, and I was the only person in the theater. It was a ten o'clock. <laughs> And there were rats running across the floor I could see in the theater. <laughs> Whereas looking at that in 3D, it was in 3D too. So watching that movie, through, that may be just my last best uh, exploitation experience. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Piranha 3D, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
maybe it will get another mini release or go and see it. Um, each year you do a list of your top films. Uh, at camp this year, I noticed that you mentioned Hail Satan, which we all thought was a blast here. Is there any chance that we can have a little sneak preview of what have been your no, favourite films? because I'm turning my Ted Besselin in tomorrow. Oh, really? Michelle, I've just finished it. But I'm <sighs> going to see one more movie tonight to see if, it, if I have to change one. I'm not going to tell you what. Oh, but no. I'm turning it. I'm, I'm going to turn it in. We... But, uh, I Hail Satan, I was just with them uh, because I just did a play to horror convention in Salem, Massachusetts. Oh, really? Quarters of the uh, Satanic Temple is, who are great activists. They're really comic. I mean, they, you know, they fight against separation of church and state. So I'm all for them. And I went to the Satanic Temple for the first time. It's 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 kind of a great place. It's uh it's nothing like you know Anton Lavey or any of that corniness. You know, these are real activists that are fighting for a cause I do believe in in a humorous way. So I think they're pretty funny. And that movie hails. Satan is really good too. So that played in Australia. Yes, it did. I think it may even good. still be on at cinemas here, but yeah, it definitely got a release well, here and if got you a. Haven't seen it. Go see it. Yes, it's really funny. it is. It's excellent. Um, we should have had this conversation tomorrow after you've done your top ten list, and then I, I could have got the information well, off you. It won't come out. It doesn't come out in the top ten list. Doesn't come out till December first in art forum. Well, we'll wait with breath until well, then. I have to keep it secret. <laughs> um, are you surprised at all of how much of an influence you and the rest of your crew, the Dreamlanders, have had on pop culture? I mean, you've you've been in The Simpsons. It doesn't get much bigger than that. Well, I'm I'm actually I'm amazed by it. Like, I just went to Mexico City. I'm going to Greece. I think how do they even know who I am in these places? It's it's it is amazing to me. And uh, but it's incredibly. Uh, I'm incredibly proud of the fact that work I. Do sometimes 30, 40 years ago, people weren't even born. Pretty soon, I'm going to say, some of my fans weren't born when I made my last one. <laughs> last, the first one. So uh, I, I, I think it's amazing. It's completely flattering that I've been able to get away with this. And I thank every one of those people on my spoken word show for really enabling me to be able to get away from this and, and supporting what I do. Yeah, and I think that yeah, it's just had such a positive impact and allowed people such freedom with you embracing, I guess, the, you know, people of the underground. It's, it's nice to have well, that celebrated. That, that everybody else told them they couldn't do what they wanted to do or they couldn't look like that or they couldn't be with that kind of person. And I think I, I have helped those people in a way, just like the same people that helped me. I wrote about them role models, yep. you know, the people that gave me the freedom to think, well, I can do this. I don't care. They say you can't make movies. Who says I can't? You know, like, you can't do this. You can't do that. But you learn that if you're driven enough, you can do it. And the ones you have to be driven, really, you have to be obsessed to have a, to have a career in the arts, I think, because who wouldn't want one? Yeah. You get paid well. You tell people what to do. Who wouldn't want to get film director? <laughs> You get to have a summer camp dedicated to you each year. You get to have a summer camp. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so, so much for your time today, John. It's been absolutely well, wonderful talking to you. Time, um, I hope I see you in camp. Here. Yeah, you'll see me on, on Friday night. at your... no, But also at camp in next year's summer camp because we got somebody good coming. I can't tell you that. <gasps> I'll be there. I'll be there for sure. I haven't missed one yet. I, I can't miss next year. Um, you can see John Waters this Friday, the 18th of October at Hamer Hall, and tickets are available via the Arts Centre website. Thanks again, John, and look forward to seeing you on Friday. I'll see you. Friday. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. Triple R.
So polyester, the daily life of Bol- uh, Baltimore housewife Francine Fishpore, played by Divine, is becoming a constant indignity. Her boorish husband, Elmer, play- runs a porn theatre and revels in calling the press as the religious right pick at their home. Her daughter, <laughs> Lulu, is dating a hoodlum and plans to abort their impending baby. Her son, Dexter, sits in his room sniffing glue and obsessing over women's feet. And her cork-snoting? Uh, coke-snorting mother is constantly insulting her weight and stealing money from her. What's more, Elmer is cheating on her and a mysterious foot stomper is stalking the city, breaking unsuspecting women's feet. Francine's only friend is Cuddles, played by Edith Massey, a dim-witted cleaner who inherited millions from an old boss and now spends her leisure time dressed in adolescent girls' clothing, hanging out with Francine and spouting positive info, I- inspo to console her. All of this drama could drive a woman to drink. And Francine does, but when a ca- series of chaotic events lead to her meeting the dashing Todd tomorrow, played by former heartthrob Tab Hunter, will her life change for the better, or is, does something sinister lurk? Suburbia. Sally, I don't think it'll shock anyone to reveal this was your retro pick for tonight. <laughs> it was. As well as in honour of John Waters, why did you decide to make us smell polyester? Well, it, the Criterion release was I, I thought I'd revisit polyester. Um, and also, I have to say, Cuddles, Edith Matthews, Massey's character in this is my favourite, all-time favourite John Waters wow. character. She just God. makes my heart so gorgeous. <laughs> she is like, oh, love her so much. Um, yeah, polyester. I, like I, when I, I spoke to John in the interview, well, what a thing this was for me And today. what a great interview, <laughs> Thank Sally. You. That yeah, was fantastic. Um, but this was, yeah, meant to be his kind of first big cinema film. It was his first film that he shot on 35mm, not 16mm. Um, and it was the first time that we see divine move into this role where she's downtrodden and she's not this kind of monstrous villain where John Waters had always called in the world and in polyester Francine Fishpaw most certainly isn't them in the world so um I really like polyester I loved your synopsis (laughs) it was fantastic um because we get to see Divine in a bit of a different light and we get to see his acting Mm. you know abilities uh pretty straight like yeah. comedy, but straight. Yeah, it yeah, is. It like, really is. Yeah. Like it's a total classic melodrama. This film. Yeah. Um, I haven't actually watched it a little while. It was so movie much fun. of the week. That's what it is. It it's is. got this incredible movie yeah. of the week feel and um, well, women's I, pictures. You know those forties, yeah. fifties type. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Melodramas. Yep. Very much so. Very much so. Even the new artwork on the Criterion release is like a Mills. Yeah, yes, it's beautiful. <laughs> Which is great. But Divine really works hard on, in this film. I, I mean, you know, Divine really owns it. Yeah, every every shot, even though every character is fantastic, but um, it's an exhausting role for Divine, you know. <laughs> uh, and the emotional, like it's just been, it's, if someone could be, you know, dragged through the mud and, you know, through rack and ruin, this is, this is the, it's the kind role. Of compliments Joker quite nicely. I think very, now that we're talking about it, they're very similar films. <laughs> Murray Franklin, Todd Tomorrow. Yes, the same thing. But what's, what's incredible about this film is watching it and uh, revisiting it in, I, I think, a modern light is seeing how much this, you know, it feels like um, South Park, mm. you know, that the, you know, the creators of South Park must have, they have to have watched this movie. It's just like yeah. this idea of, and as John Waters said in the interview when he talked about about this idea of making fun of everything, making fun of yourself, and they make fun of everything, that, that moment where they go down the street and are whacking people down the street, you know, <laughs> that, it's just like with a broom all the, on the street, 
all the stereotypes, you know, just a parade of stereotypes, <laughs> you know. And the nun that chases them down <laughs> and beats them. She's great. What's her name Jean again? Jean Hill. Yeah, Jean yeah. Hill. She's yeah. fantastic. And uh, and she has, uh, what was she, Desperate Living? Yes. Yes, yes. yes. She's in Desperate Living. But, um, yeah, there's just something about this uh, this film that's so, it, it hangs it on intellectualism in film, mm-hmm. but it is just so smart and insightful. I think it's general. I think so many of his films satirize American life and mm. American social mores and moral panic and all that sort of thing. Um, I, I, I I saw this a few years ago and for some reason I think because I'd watched it in 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 order and so I was watching all these crazy films beforehand yep. and this sort of was like oh this is a bit tame, but watching it now in isolation I loved it. Mm. It's so good. Um, and the 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 way you know he uses the iconography of of Tab Hunter. You know, uh, uh, then uh, was he, he was out, out by yeah, then? Yeah, we were wondering too. this if he was out at this point when polyester was made. Mm. I had seen the documentary but, uh, Tab, Con- uh, Tab Hunter Confidential, but I can't remember whether he was actually out or not. I have a feeling he might have. And, and if he was, been. that's just the perfect. Like it's a heartthrob and having fallen in love with Divine and just and and, and the romance scene. You yes. know, the kind of the the, the <laughs> that kind of um, you know that love melange. Yes, you know when they. Yeah, it reminded me of Play Misty for me yes. before it goes all awry. <laughs> Scored to a song written by, co-written by Debbie Harry and sung by Bill Murray. Amazing. amazing. The soundtrack is amazing. Uh, John Waters' soundtracks are always great. And this one's particularly interesting because it is stuff that is all written for the film, which is unusual for him. Mm. Um, yeah, we've... And, it's incredible the talent that he's got yeah. here. Like there's three songs and they're like written by either Michael Kamen, Debbie Harry, and Debbie Harry's uh, blondie, um, co- uh, the, Chris Stein. Chris yeah. Stein. Yeah. Um, and this was at the peak of their powers. Like mm. this is when you know this is the same year as Call Me and Tide Is High, and he's got them for this little crazy little movie. <laughs> and then Bill Murray just wanders in drunk one night and sings on the soundtrack. <laughs> Apparently, this is. I was reading a thing from the line producer, and uh, <laughs> uh, it's crazy. But yeah, it's such a, it's such a lovely, fun satire of uh, of of those kind of films and, and and of American society. So much fun. Polyester is now available to rent or buy on Apple Movies. Um, on tonight's show, we discuss Joker now screening at all good cinemas, and Polyester now available to rent or buy on Apple Movies. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R on Demand, or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at triplear.org.au right now. That's rrr.org.au. You can also subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, we will explore three films. I can't tell you what. What a surprise. Um, to everyone. Including <laughs> people in this studio. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast, uh, to a killer Carl Chapman for panelling the show, and to Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. Thanks for listening to Triple R's Plato's Cave, a weekly radio show of informed, passionate and fun film criticism. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch with us via the Plato's Cave Facebook page, Twitter or via the Triple R website.